you never leave us and you never forsake us. And I pray now, Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, this trustworthy communication from you to us, uh, that you'd help me reliably teach it, that you give us ears to hear, and that by your spirit, each one of us would see Jesus that bit more clearly than we'd done to this point in our lives, whatever journey or wherever we are on the journey with God and with life that we each are. So I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please uh, do take a seat. Um, And if you've got a Bible, then I wonder if you'd be kind enough to turn to uh, Ephesians chapter 6. It's page 1177 of these bluey-green Bibles that are always available um, at the back of church. Page 1177. And we're going to look, we've just been taking this journey for about six months through this letter that in the Bible is called Ephesians. It was a letter written by a man called Paul to a cluster of churches. And week by week for the last few months we've been taking each passage consecutively and we've reached the penultimate section. We're going to take uh, chapter 6 and from sentence 10 to 20 um, this morning. But let me um, ask you a question and really whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, uh, wherever you may plant yourself on a spiritual spectrum. This question, I'm sure you can answer because it's very subjective and personal. When you think of the church, your experience of the church, and I hope that's predominantly been good, but uh, probably has had some not so good reference points in it as well. When you think of the church, what image springs to mind? Or what feeling is conjured up when you think of church? What about when you think of Jesus or when you think of Christians? Again, what what image comes to the surface or what feelings or words percolate to the top when you think about that? The Bible actually has a a remarkable number of images to describe the church. I guess the church is quite a complex thing. I don't mean the building, by the way. I mean the community of people when I say church in that sense. And the Bible has a remarkable number of images to describe uh, what the church is. Um, The church is a family with Jesus as our great big brother and God as our father and us as brothers and sisters. And maybe that one came to the forefront. That's a, a good, positive image. In fact, 209 times in the newer part of the Bible, the New Testament, that family image is used. The Bible sometimes talks about the church as a school, with Jesus as the teacher, and where the disciples, the learners, are growing and being informed uh, by him. Sometimes the Bible talks about the church as a hospital, and Jesus is the great healer, who brings restoration and healing into our lives and into our relationships in different ways. Sometimes the church is a temple, and Jesus is the priest, the high priest, and we're the followers who look to that high priest to connect with God through and in. Sometimes the church is a building, Jesus is the architect, and I'm afraid there, friends, we come out as the bricks and the stones. It's not the most, uh, most pleasant image, is it? Sometimes uh, we're a farm. The church is described as a farm. Jesus is the great shepherd of that farm. And again, I'm afraid we're the, the slightly daft sheep. Uh, and just the other day, uh, well, it must have been a few months ago now, I was out for a little walk, and uh, I saw one of those daft sheep with its foot stuck down a cattle grate. <coughs> the farmer pulling that foot out, got the sheep free. When we came back down the same path, 20 minutes later, I guess it was the same sheep. You can't really tell them apart, but there it is with its foot down there. Um, but that's who we are. Sometimes the church is described as a body, and we're the different members, arms and elbows and knees and toenails and those sorts of things. And Jesus is the head uh, which controls us and cares for us and guides us. 
One of the images in the Bible, which actually providentially, it wasn't planned this way, is very suitable for Remembrance Sunday, is the image of the church as an army. Are you familiar with that image of the church in the Bible? I I suspect not many of us had that as the image that conjured up to the front of our mind when we think about the church. We don't think of the church necessarily as an army. That makes Jesus the great warrior. And there's some very strong pictures of the warrior general Jesus, particularly in the later parts of the Bible. He's clad in armour. He has victory notches in his belt. Down his leg is tattooed King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he rides in on a battle stallion with a broadsword and a battle axe and shield. A quite frightening image in that sense of Jesus as this great warrior king. And in the image of us as an army, in this military image, we of course are soldiers, aren't we? Now, as well as being less usual in our thinking, I suspect some of us feel a little uncomfortable with that army image, that religious soldier image. Quite rightly, we live in a world, don't we, at the moment, where things are very tense around that kind of idea, jihad and those sorts of terrorist concepts. And so there's some clarity that needs to come right at the beginning, isn't there? When we think about the church as an army, it is not that we are fighting ever against people, But we are fighting for people, for people, not against them. And when we think of the church as an army, it's not about taking captives, but it's about freeing prisoners, isn't it? Do you see the difference here? What side of the army imagery the Bible would have us draw on? It's not about seeking war, but it is about promoting peace and fighting for peace and reconciliation. That's very well worth fighting for, isn't it? It's not about bringing death but is about defeating death and bringing life, in all meanings of that word, into people's lives. It's not about acts of terror, it is about acts of love. And all of those things are worth fighting for, aren't we? I think all of us, and we may have different locations, our feelings about whether war is just or ever right or not, but all of us would put our hand up, I think, and say there are some things worth fighting for. The reconciliation of marriages, the protection of children who are in domestically violent situations, the slave trade trade that exists around the world that needs to be ended, other injustice in the world. These things are worth fighting for, are they not? I think they are. And so the army imagery that the Bible uses is in that kind of context, freeing captives, proclaiming peace, defeating death, acts of love, always fighting for people, but never ultimately against people. Reality's worth fighting for. And what's interesting, if you've got a Bible, you can see it there. What's interesting is Paul begins this little section, verse 10 there, with the word finally, which doesn't actually mean last of all, it means most of all. It's that idea of finally. Most of all, I want this image in your mind. And he's just talked about really normal life stuff, hasn't he? If you can glance at the preceding chapters or you've been here the last few weeks, you'll see he's talked about marriage and family and parenting and and being a child to a growing parent who perhaps needs more care and attention as they move into that stage of life. He's talked about the workplace. What does it mean to be a boss? What does it mean to be an employee? And he says, most of all, remember, success in those arenas means you need to think with a wartime mentality that actually normal Christian life is a battle. And I think Paul is trying to say, and we'll look look through it just now, he's trying to say, actually if we haven't grasped that, 
if we're in a peacetime mentality, then we're not going to fight for all those things which are so worth fighting for. We're not going to be people who are freeing prisoners. We're not going to be, be people who are fighting for our marriages to be wonderful. We're not going to be people who, as we pray for our children, realise we're on the front line of their lives. We're not, because we don't have that wartime mentality of fighting for the realities that are worth fighting for. So in this section, Paul basically talks about the enemy that we're up against. He then talks about us as soldiers and what we're to wear. And then he talks about the battle and its focus. Let's just take them in turn. I just want to work our way through this passage and see what you make of it, see how it might affect or change your life or your view of Jesus and who Jesus actually is. So first of all, the enemy and his schemes. Let me read sentences 11, 10 to 12. This is what it says. Finally, or most of all, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, I wonder how you feel. I mean, maybe that fulfills all sorts of preconceptions you had about church. Maybe, you can, maybe you're breathing a sigh of relief and thinking, I'm glad my friend from works across the desk isn't here this morning at church. We're talking about the devil. I wonder, do you feel bemused or amused, a wry smile, or confused? Do you feel confident? Some of us will, won't we? Do we feel concerned? Do we feel like we've never considered it? I think that there's three possible reactions when we start talking about this idea of an enemy and the devil and Satan and all these sorts of words. Reaction number one, I think, is that some of us might simply want to dismiss it. To think that actually we can ignore it as a past superstition and we've grown in our culture way too sophisticated to believe in that kind of mumbo-jumbo. That could be one option, couldn't it? I think, and I might default to that, but I think many of us have grown up in a culture and a society that has been shielded from some of the most evil and wicked things our world has to offer. And therefore we are blinded to the potential reality of the devil, aren't we? I've been very struck by this quote, uh, it'll be on the screen, from uh, the general who led the NATO troops in Rwanda after the genocide there. If you could uh, throw it up a couple of slides on, I think, John. Um, This is what he says, Romeo Dallier, uh, who led those NATO troops in Rwanda. He said, death became a desired option. I hoped I'd hit a mine or run into an ambush and just end it all. I think some part of me wanted to join the legions of the dead whom I had failed. I know there is a God, because in Rwanda I shook hands with the devil. I've seen him, I've smelled him, and I've touched him. I know the devil exists, and therefore I know that there is a God. There's someone coming from a very similar culture that we would in the Western world. He's Canadian, who might well have been shielded from some of the worst atrocities that the world has to offer. And seeing them can only come to the conclusion to say there is something more than just the wickedness of a human heart. There is a deeper reality that is causing this corruption in our world. So one option is we dismiss. We say, actually, we think we can ignore it. It's a past superstition. I would just raise a question about whether that's a healthy or right approach. The second is that we might think in this kind of language and we distort. We think we can define the devil. Either as excessively to be feared 
And some of us might fall into this trap of seeing the devil behind every teapot. Every time a minor crisis or a little drama erupts, we immediately say, well, the devil made me do it. Have you done that? He hasn't got that kind of power. We, dis- we distort. We make him out to be something more than he is. Or we distort by foolishly mocking him and not taking him seriously. C.S. Lewis, just a second quote, again on the screen if you like to read these things. C.S. Lewis, most famous for Chronicles of Narnia and those sorts of things. An Oxford Don um, wrote a plethora of books. This is what he says. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and, and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. I wonder if you see yourself reflected there. You someone who dimi- dismisses, I ignore. You someone who's distorted. A magician who kind of overplays uh, the power of the devil. Or a materialist who kind of absolutely just kind of mocks gently. I, I wonder where you fit. The third possible option I wonder that's out there is to domesticate the devil, to think that we can control it. Either like we control a farmyard animal, he's a tool that we can coerce and force to serve us, perhaps through incarnations or potions or whatever it might be, that we can make the devil do what we want to do and serve our purposes. Now, I don't think many of us have touched that culture. I could be wrong. I think many of us are in a groove of society which is not massively affected by that kind of Um, uh, a cult or pagan approach. What I think we do in our culture, most of all actually, is to domesticate, this third category of domesticate, but domesticate the devil like we do a household pet. To say that he's fun to entertain us. And we've seen that enormously, haven't we, in the rise of teenage and tweenage fiction, which is now dominated by a saturation and an infatuation with this kind of world. It started with Buffy the Vampire Slayer that I remember in the 1990s. Those my generation can remember that, can't we? Good old Buffy doing her stuff. And now has grown into things like the Vampire Diaries and the Twilight series and uh, all the general hullabaloo around Halloween. Now, we spoke about Halloween a few weeks ago, about a good, positive, creative, redeeming way to be involved and engage. All of it points, though, doesn't it, to this idea that we can somehow domesticate evil and invite evil into our homes and into our schools as if it's not something to be feared it's something we can play with so I want to just spend a moment or two suggesting some markers that the Bible gives us that can better define our approach to evil and wickedness in the world wherever you may be located when you think about it See, the Bible's unashamed to talk about the devil. In the Old Testament, he's called the accuser, the seducer, or the persecutor. They're the three main titles that are given to him. In the New Testament is where we get the name devil from. It's from the Greek word diabolas, from which we get also the English word diabolical, don't we? Um, and also the word Satan. And both the devil and Satan in Greek mean something like a liar, a deceiver, a slanderer, a mudslinger, or a corrupter. There's four great markers the Bible gives us about this character. The first is that he's created by God. Genesis 3 verse 1 includes him in the category of all created animals. He's something God created. 
Now, how and why, the Bible is not very explicit on. There's a theory that many enjoy about a fallen angel, but it's not strongly tied to the Bible texts. The point is, it created by God. Not a dual or external force fighting God alongside, but created by God, underneath God. Secondly, that he's controlled by God. Most explicitly, we see that at the beginning of the Old Testament book, Job, where Satan is clearly given parameters by God in which Satan cannot step over. He has no ability to go beyond the markers, the boundary that God has set. So much so that the end of the book of Job, Job 41, verse 5, one of my favourite, favourite verses in the Bible, Satan's feebleness compared to God's supremacy means Satan is described like a little kitten on a string that you'd give your child to play with. Do you see the extent of the control that God has? The, The devil is like a little poodle that he can throw out at night without even thinking about it. And thirdly, created by God, controlled by God, crushed by Jesus. The Bible ends in Revelation with a clear account that a day will come when Jesus will take the devil by the scruff of his neck and hurl him for eternity, destroyed and crushed, and his influence ended. So created by God, controlled by God, crushed by Jesus, loads of mystery within the context. But fourthly, the Bible would say he's the cause of lots of evil today. That he has a temporary God-given ability to cause and be the root of some horrific stuff today. Not all of it. We're to blame and we need to hold our hands up a lot. Human beings are not good. But the devil is real. And so we're told, for example, in Revelation 12, he terrifies like a dragon. Or in 2 Corinthians 4, that he's the source of blindness when people cannot see or believe in Jesus. That that's his work, to cover our eyes. That he's the heart of disobedience in Ephesians chapter to two, that he does miracles to lead people away from Jesus in 2 Thessalonians 2, that he kidnaps people to do his will in 2 Timothy 2, that he snatches the word before it can grow and be fruitful, says Jesus in Matthew 13, that he corrupts authority at all levels to do wrong, we're told in Luke chapter 4. He encourages hostility and the breakdown of relationships in Acts chapter 13. He thwarts the mission of the church, 1 Thessalonians 2, and he imprisons pastors, Revelation 2. I don't read that passage too much. <laughs> and so, if the devil is real, this is what I'm proposing. You need to make your own decisions. I mean, I'm, you know, it's, this is ponder it, think it. We put Bibles in everyone's hands so you can take them away, come to your own conclusions. But the Bible would say, whatever you're thinking, wherever your start point is, here's the Bible's markers that we need to align to. One, the devil is created by God. He's not outside of God. He's not a dual force fighting against God. He's very much underneath God and created by God. He's controlled by God, cannot function beyond the boundaries that God sets. And God is too loving to wish us harm, ultimately. God is too wise to have made a mistake. Wherever those boundaries have been set are loving and wise. And that Satan cannot act beyond them. He's crushed by Jesus ultimately, and he has an influence. He causes lots of disruption today. Now, the question in my mind, I'm sure is in yours, is if all of that is true, why does God allow the devil to remain? Why does God allow evil in our world? If, he's under, if he can control it and ultimately will crush it. Why? And I think the answer 
is because the full supremacy of Jesus is revealed as contrasted to Satan's feebleness. That the canvas upon which the splendour and majesty and power of Jesus most vibrantly blazes is evil. You read the accounts of Jesus and his encounters with evil and that seems to be the thrust of what they're telling us. Jesus controls it with a word when no one else can control it with anything. It's like this, let me illustrate it for a moment and give you a brain break. Maybe you've had that privileged, exciting, heart-pounding moment of walking into a jewellery store, knowing that either you or the person you're walking with has a watch full of money in their pocket that they want to spend in that store. Have you done that? Or you've gone in, no one has. Okay. You should do it, especially if you're wooing her. If you're wooing her, you should do it. And you've got in, maybe you're buying something for yourself, you're buying a gift for a loved one or a parent, or perhaps you're doing the engagement ring shop, whatever it might be, and you've walked into this posh, high-end jewellery store. You know, one of those places where you knock first and they open the outer door and then that locks behind you before they open the inner door. Have you been in one of those places? No, no, have I. I've just seen it on TV. (laughs) Hannah got worried for a minute. What? (laughs) Who was that for? No. Uh, uh, And when you walk into a jewellery, or even if you go into HM Samuels or whatever, you know, if you're in that level. I've been there a lot. No, even if you go go into any of these jewellery stores, And you say, oh, well, I'm looking for a set of earrings for my dear mum, or whatever it might be. And the first thing they do, isn't it, is not take out the jewellery you're interested in. It's not, is it? First thing they do is to take out a deep black velvet cloth and lay it on the side, don't they? And then they put the diamond on that. Because the diamond blazes so much more brightly. You see the diamond for what it truly is when it's against that black velvet. So, at its heart, God allows Satan some authority in our world, so we rightly see the blazing beauty of Jesus set against that blackness. There's a lot to ponder there, isn't there? Some rich thinking to be done. And here, in Ephesians, Paul is saying, this is the guy who is our enemy, ultimately. Our enemy in marriages, and our enemy in the workplace, and our enemy in parenting, and our enemy in the church, it is this guy he calls the devil. Notice what he says in sentence 11. He says, uh, put on the full armour of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. The word schemes there means his cunning, his slyness, his cleverness. He's described in 1 Peter as like a prowling lion hidden in the undergrowth, coming towards you ready to pout so he might not spot. He's a real schemer. But notice, all he can do is scheme. He can't really act. He can only tempt us to be led astray down a wrong avenue. He's scheming to corrupt things like our marriages. He's scheming to make the church fracture and fragment. He's scheming to make parenting unsuccessful. He has schemes. And so we're told in verse 12, do you see, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, therefore. It is against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil. Our actual struggle in marriage, our actual struggle in church, our actual struggle in parenting, actually, ultimate its root, our struggle is against the devil's schemes. So that's the enemy and his schemes. So secondly, Paul says, what about the soldier and their armour then? So now he's talking to the church, corporately, most of this is in the plural. It's not actually addressed to individual people about putting on the armour of God. It's, it's plural. All the yous in here are plural. It's us together 
put on the full armour of God. Let me read what it says. Sentence 13 now to sentence 17. Therefore, because our battle is against the devil, therefore put on the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Think of your marriage. Think of parenting. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled round your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So it's a charge here by Paul. He's saying if you realise who your enemy actually is, the one who's really trying to disrupt and corrupt your life, then you're going to dress appropriately for that fight, aren't you? Now Paul might here be drawing on Old Testament imagery. He was saturated in the Old Testament part of the Bible. There's lots of imagery about the soldier of God. Or, remember, he's chained and in prison. He would have been chained about two foot of, of, of metal chain between him and a Roman soldier in this full palaver. So maybe he's writing and thinking, what image can I use for the church as an army? Oh, here's the chap here. I've always thought, poor old soldier, stuck next to Paul. You couldn't get up and pretend you're going to the loo if your preaching got boring, could it? If you're chained to Paul as he's going... I've thought about it on the chairs, chain you down, keep preaching at you. We don't know which one it is, whether he's got his mind in the Old Testament or his eyes on the person next to him. But basically what he's saying, he's saying, look, if you, if you don't understand the real battle you're in, who your enemy is, you're not going to dress rightly for that battle. Now, I don't think there's massive correlation between the element of armour, like a helmet or a shield, and the particular attribute that it's given, i.e. the helmet of salvation or the shield of faith. Whole landfills are filled with the pages of, of written ideas about whether they correlate or not. I actually don't think Paul particularly cared that it was a helmet of salvation or a shield of faith. He's saying get dressed in the armour that God has given you to fight against the schemes of the devil. That armour is going to be things like truth and righteousness and faith and salvation and the word of God. Dress yourself for battle. Let me illustrate it like this. If this is about Paul saying, recognise who your enemy is, so be dressed for that battle. Imagine for a moment, you're pulled up at traffic lights. They turn red. You pulled up and stopped. You glance out the window while you wait, busy junction, it's going to be quite a wait for the lights to turn green again. And there's a massive warehouse on your left-hand side. And clearly something's going on. It's kind of been turned into some sort of arena and there's lights on, and there's people going in and out the door, and you wonder what on earth could be happening. So you edge forward just a little bit, which allows you to see through the door when everyone swings through. And just as you do that, a car pulls up, and out steps a young lad. And he is like the nerdiest geek you've ever seen in your life. He's got flappy shoes that he's not tied properly. He's wearing a nerdy Batman t-shirt, vintage as well. It's an original 1982, and he's got it on. Uh, he's got a baseball hat turned to the side because he thinks it looks cool and he's got his own personalised, stylized game console in his hand. And you think, oh, this guy's turned up for a gaming competition. That's what's so massive in there. People are watching them compete on games. And then that guy pushes open the door and he stops in his tracks and you can glance over his shoulder and see inside. And actually, it's not a gaming console computer arena at all. It's a live cage fight. No whole bars, battle, on the edge of legality. And from the car you can smell the stench of testosterone. And the mats are bloodied and ligaments are torn and scars are half healed and the blokes are titans. 
Well, the teenage lad has turned up in the wrong attire, hasn't he? For the wrong, wrong fight. He didn't know what the fight was. And so he came wearing the wrong kit. I wonder how often we approach our marriages like that. And I keep using marriage and the workplace and parenting because they are the preceding chapters. Immediately before this, you can see it in your Bible, immediately before this he's talked about the real, normal, practical Christian life, the daily Christian life. He's not talking about some unexpected fight that arises once in a blue moon. He's talking about the minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, living for Jesus. And he says, actually, if we have not realised that ultimately we're fighting against the devil's schemes, then we're going to turn up like that lad turned up. We're going to turn up at a cage fight with a computer console. It's farcical, isn't it? So he says, are you armed and dangerous in how you're going to fight for people? Are you armed and dangerous? Which leads us on to his third point here. Third and final that Paul makes, though I've got a fourth one I'm going to add. Sentences 18 to 20, which is quite a surprise. It's the battle and its focus. He's described our enemy as the devil. He's described our armour. Are you ready for the battle? Are you wearing the right attire? And then he says, look, the battle is won. How? By prayer and proclamation. By prayer and speaking. Look what he says here. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Notice the repeat of the idea of prayer. You can't miss it, can you? Pray, 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 pray. It's odd, isn't it? We often think of prayer as a very restful, relaxed, kind of yogic experience, don't we? We retreat into some quiet corner. We're outside of the hubbub of of life. We're separated from the work. Place. We almost treat prayer as the opposite of the battlefield, don't we? I used to be able to get up early enough in the morning to be out of bed before our boys do. Now they are following their dad, and if I wanted to do that, it would be about four o'clock in the morning. But I used to do that, and I'd pray when the house was quiet. And then the boys would wake up, and the war would begin. Actually, Paul says, Alex, your thinking is totally wrong. He says the front line, where the fighting is fiercest, where the battle is won, is where? In prayer, doesn't he? Do you see that? That prayer actually is when we are armed, dangerous, and are fighting against the devil. That makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Because actually if we're not fighting against flesh and blood, human things, tangible things, but the devil's scheme, well, where is going to be that arena that we're fighting in? Where is the battlefield? It's in prayer. Now, there's lots of images of prayer, about the intimacy of prayer, the closeness of God in prayer. This image, though, I think, is the one that we've most lost. Prayer as battle. So do we think of prayer more like the servant bell in that posh house that calls someone to bring us some food, or like the battlefield transistor that calls back to our general for reinforcements? Do we think about prayer as just a civilian intercom with the pizza delivery guy on speed dial? Or do we think about prayer as the wartime radio? Do we think about prayer as our requests for comfort? God, would you just give me this or would you give me that? Or as the way we wield a weapon against the throat of Satan? Have we hijacked a military frequency with civilian chatter? 
Do we have a wartime mentality when it comes to prayer? And he says, pray, did you see all these sorts of different forms of prayers, prayers and requests, keep on praying on all occasions for the Lord's people, pray for one another. But again, what's the imagery? The Lord's people, the church, is not a club where we have an agreed, mutually enjoyable centre point, like a golf club where you have circumstantial friends because you all enjoy golf, or like a knitting club because you have circumstantial friends who all enjoy knitting. That's not the church. We often think like that, don't we? Well, we have a shared interest in Jesus, so we're circumstantial friends around Jesus. No, we're not. Actually, whether we're friends with one another or not is actually secondary in the Bible. What we are is comrades to one another. What we are is soldiers fighting together. There's an oddity that sometimes I experience being on the military base where soldiers who depend on one another literally for their lives outside of their soldiering moment are not necessarily particularly good friends. Because their unity, their protection of one another, their desire to protect one another is not because they are friends, it's because they are soldiers. Do you see? With a mutual cause and a joint mission. Pray for one another, not because you're necessarily friends, but because we're soldiers. And if I don't pray for you, I haven't got your back. And if you don't pray for me, you've opened it up for the sniper to take me down. And the particular thing he asks us to pray for one another is in verses, 20 to 20, uh, verses 19 to 20. And do you see the repeat of the word fearless? Fearless twice. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in change. Pray I may declare it fearlessly as I should. That we pray for one another, we pray for ourselves, that we would fearlessly, without fear, tell people about Jesus, the gospel, the great good news of who Jesus is. That kind of fearlessness only comes around through prayer, doesn't it? And in verse 19, it's a particular fearlessness about clarity. Do you see what he says? Whenever I speak, words may be given to me, so I will fearlessly make known. That's an explanation word. There's a fearlessness that needs to come when we're trying to explain something so people get it. I often think about that as being in my study, when I'm trying to work out a way to explain something. But verse 20 is a fearlessness in sense of courage to then speak it out. Not just in the study, how to explain it, but on the stage, how to say it. Not just at home when you read your Bible in how to understand it, but in the workplace, in responding to something, how to say it. Explanation and proclamation, to be fearless in both. Let me pause a moment and get our wits around us. I've been massively struck by this passage. It, it, it's blazed so brightly over the last week or two before me that it's burnt a blindness off my eyes I didn't even realise I had. Like a cataract that had creeped in so slowly over time I hadn't realised that it had started to create blind spots until suddenly the surgeon comes along with his jazzy laser scalpel and whoosh, the cataract is gone. I go, now I see! And the thing I think I've become blind to was that ultimately our battle is against the devil's schemes. That if I want marriage and parenting and workplace and church to prevail, if I want to be God-exalting and God-honouring in all of those places, I must do all of the human things necessary. Don't mishear me. 
Our feet are firmly planted in the mud of our lives. We've got to do the human things. But if we are not also recognising a spiritual dynamic to them, then we've lost the battle because we've not even entered the battle, haven't we? So Paul says, look, you need to know, and some of us aren't Christians, some of us are very unsure about some of the things I may have said this morning. I wonder if you'll take it away in considering it. I don't spend my days swinging off the, the chandeliers. I'm a pretty rooted, sensible, sane bloke. And I think this is real. So he says, get dressed for the right battle. Don't walk into marriage knowing you must fight for your marriage, never against... I mean, marriage is a battlefield, but not like society tells us it is. Not between husband and wife, but husband and wife fighting for each other. That's the battle of marriage. And parenting is a battlefield, but not like society makes us think of the teenager raging against their father, but actually the father battling for their teenager. Are you dressed for that? And he says, then, where it's won is prayer. I've realised that when I squeeze in the moments to pray for Hannah, or I squeeze in the moments to pray for the church, or I squeeze in the moments to pray for my family who don't yet believe in Jesus, that I'm not praying for myself to enter the battle. I'm in the battle right then and that moment. And I've wondered what radical change would occur in my life not being wasted. We have one life, it'll soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. I've wondered how radically my life would be changed if instead of a peacetime mentality, I had a wartime mentality. I entered each day saying, this is a battle. I wonder what change it would make to you. The last thing I think Paul wants to say is in the context of the whole letter, and this is probably the most important thing to have our minds clear on as we finish, is there is this strange tension that we're called to live, which is on one side knowing and behaving with that more time mentality, as I've been talking about for the last half an hour, but then on the other side, knowing and behaving with Christ as victorious and the one who has already won the battle. Have you ever thought about that? There is a strange tension there, isn't there? That we are called so clearly in this passage to come into life as a war, and yet at the same time we're told that Jesus is totally, entirely and fully victorious over everything. In fact, right at the beginning of Ephesians, and if you would turn to it as the one little cross reference as we come into land, if you've got a Bible, you'll see it. Ephesians chapter 1, when Paul prays the first of a couple of prayers in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, sentence 18, this is what he prays. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparable great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted. Now here it comes, the victory of Jesus. When he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills everything in every way. Did you see that language? That actually everything is under Christ's feet. That even as we are called to fight and battle, Everything is under Christ's feet, that he is utterly, fully and totally victorious. 
And we know that ultimately, did you see the reference to Jesus' resurrection? So we go into life saying, yes, this is a battle, this is a fight, it's a wartime mentality, it's the devil who I'm up against, but at the same time, we know and function and believe that Jesus is totally victorious. That Jesus came to this world and was born as a tiny baby in a cradle, wasn't he? That he lived and he did miracles and he did teaching and he set aside 12 disciples who founded the church and who passed on historically accurate records of his life. But then then he died, crucified on a cross, an innocent man giving a criminal's death. He was buried, his flesh started to decompose, the smell started to drift out of the tomb. And then a little gaggle of women who loved him so dearly, they walked to his tomb three days after he died. What did they find? They found it empty, didn't they? That Jesus had defeated death. And death is Satan's great champion and warrior, sent into the world to kill every one of us. If Jesus has defeated death, then who has he also defeated? He has defeated Satan, hasn't he? And then Jesus, 40 days, 40 evidence-filled days. Why did Jesus only stay on the earth for 40 days resurrected? Because if you don't believe after 40 days of evidence, you won't believe after 400, you won't believe after 4,000. If you can't believe after six weeks, then it's not a lack of evidence, it's a hardness of heart. So after 40 days, he rose, then he ascended to heaven where he lives and reigns today. And so we have King Jesus in heaven right now, victorious. And so we march into battle knowing the battle is already won. Now that's a strange tension, isn't it? We march into battle saying actually Jesus already is the death defeater, that Jesus already is the sin slayer, Jesus already is the Satan crusher, Jesus already is the life restorer, Jesus already is the heart transformer. That we march into battle saying actually Jesus is the warrior prince of peace, Jesus is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. We march into battle knowing we have to fight, knowing that Jesus is both the lamb of God and the lion who roars. Amen is right. And so there's a very strange battle that we Christians are in. Not like any earthly battle. No soldier from MOD Stafford walks onto the Afghan front line and goes, yeah, I'm going to fight and I'm going to bleed and I'm going to be bruised and it's going to hurt. But one, I'll never die. And two, I know the battle's already won. No soldier gets to do that, do they? And yet we do. We get to walk into battle and it is a battle knowing we're going to bleed and it's going to hurt and we're going to limp and knowing we'll never die and knowing Jesus has won and that's going to motivate a soldier isn't it so my invitation to you is today like me over the last few weeks to allow the great surgeon Jesus to burn the cataracts off your eyes and to no longer be blind to the reality of who we're fighting and to dust off the armour, to stand from your slumber, to look at another's eyes who's glinting and gleaming and ready for it, and say, today I march. Today I thump my sword against my shield, and I'll give every ounce of myself, never against people, but every ounce of myself for people that Jesus might be seen as he truly is, the victorious king. And those who felt they were able in God's people, which I hope is all God's people, they said, Amen. Amen. Johnny, come lead us in some songs.